Thanks so much for joining us today on Leesburg Community Church's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, including directions and service times, please visit leesburgcc.org. On our website, you can also find notes and daily devotionals based on this teaching. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you liked today's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for uh, bringing us into your homes, your cars, however you're listening to this today. Uh, thanks for joining with us as we get ready to open the Word of God. Uh, today we are going to be finishing up Mark chapter 10, uh, and we'll be covering verses 32 through 52. It's a pretty long passage of Scripture, uh, and it's a conclusion of Jesus' teaching on discipleship. All the way from uh, the middle of chapter 9 of Mark uh, to the end of this chapter, we see Jesus informing his disciples and us today how we go about this process of discipleship. You see, he's heading towards Jerusalem in this final part of chapter 10, and it will be the end of his public ministry. So as we work through the text, I want you to keep that in mind, uh, that these are some of Jesus' final thoughts before he goes for his final week here on earth. And he's wrapping things up and he's giving his disciples one final object lesson. And before we open up scripture, I ask that you would pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are. God, as your people are listening to this, as the people you have called to yourself or are calling to yourself are listening, God, I ask that this word would be rejuvenating, that it would be convicting that it would be everything that you would have it to be. Lord, where my words would get in the way, would I stop speaking? And would I point quickly back to you instead of anything in myself or any of my, my own thoughts and ideas? God, would your word go forth in power today? Lord, would I become less that you might become more? And would your people be encouraged by the hearing of your word? Father, we thank you again for who you are. And bless our time together. And all these things we say, amen. So like I said, we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 52. And if you haven't grabbed your Bibles, or if you haven't opened the Bible tab, then go ahead and do that right now. I'm going to read the whole passage so that we get an understanding of the flow. And then we're going to work all the way through the passage. And we're going to have a couple of points of application at the very end. All of it is rich, though, for us as we, we read it. Starting in verse 32, he says, And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, to do, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and the other at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. 
Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared And when the ten heard, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, Let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go away. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. It's a long passage of Scripture. And as we go all the way back to the very beginning, there's one thing that we need to understand. It's that Jesus is hope incarnate. You see, Jesus predicts his death for the third time in Mark in this passage. And this third uh, prediction, this third uh, prophecy is the most explicit of all of them. He tells them exactly what will happen. The Son of Man is going to be given to the chief priest and the scribes. They will condemn him to die. Then he's going to go to the Gentiles and they will mock him spit on him, flog him, and finally kill him. This is the path Jesus has set before him. You see, but he doesn't leave it there in the grave. He ends with hope. And after three days, he will rise. See, his death will not be final. There is hope to come. And the good news for you and I, and what we get to have the benefit of of reading into this passage, is that this is the very reason why our lives are not hopeless. Why there is a reason to live. You see, Romans declares that we are dead in our sins, and before Christ that we have no life in us. But Christ makes us alive through His death and His victory over the grave. And Jesus, then, is hope incarnate. When you look to Jesus, you have a great hope. And so, uh, as you uh, look at the things that are happening in this world, 
as a disciple of Jesus, we should have the greatest hope. We should be the greatest bearers of hope. Because just as Jesus is hope incarnate on this earth, we as his disciples now inherit that same uh, uh, quality. We inherit the fact that we are hope to a world that is oftentimes hopeless. And so when things look most dire, uh, the Christian gets to look up and say, there is still a great hope to come. That those who would trust in Jesus would have a great hope. And so uh, that is the first uh, pathway, part of the pathway of discipleship, is putting our hope in Jesus and realizing the hope that He gives us. And secondly, we see this, that we share in, when we share in Jesus' suffering, we are sharing in His glory. Verses 35-40, through 40, what we see is James and John asking Jesus to be with Him in His glory. To be at His left and His right hand. And again, as a, a modern day believer, we get the benefit of looking back and knowing that Jesus was most glorified on the cross. That Jesus was given his greatest moments of glory here on earth as he was dying on the cross because he bore a sin that was not his to bear and he did what no one else could do. He broke the power of death and grave and shame and he did that and that was his moment of glory. And so for James and John to be asking to be with him in his glory, they were asking to be on his left and his right on a cross next to him. You see, they didn't realize what they were asking. And Jesus tells them as much. And they go back and forth for a few moments. And what he ends up telling them is this, you will drink from my cup and you will be baptized in the same way I was baptized. That you will share in my suffering. And here's what I think we often miss so we get this idea that Jesus is hope incarnate. That is the truth of Scripture. Uh, but we oftentimes forget to remember uh, that we share in Jesus' glory as we share in His suffering. We oftentimes think uh, that pain is a marker that God's hand is against us. We think that suffering somehow marks that His blessing is far away from us. But here's what we must remember Blessing is never measured by my bank account, in the size of the house I own, the job I have, or the title I've been given. It's not even found in those who love me. The measure of God's blessing is found in God's active presence in our life. And sometimes this means we are uncomfortable. Sometimes it means we go through immense pain. But it is Him growing us uh, that is what is happening in the midst of those moments of pain. We are being remolded. We are being conformed into the image of His Son. You see, when we share in Jesus' suffering, we are sharing in His glory because we are reflecting who He is all the more. As disciples, we cannot run from suffering. As disciples, we must face it with Christ in us. There is not one moment of our life where we don't have Him. And even in the parts that hurt, He's still there. And we need to be reminded that Jesus is hope incarnate. 
and that we share in His glory as we share in His suffering. This doesn't mean that your life will be sad all the time. It doesn't mean that everything will go wrong for you. It means that when you do face it, you realize that God is working in you to produce a glory for His benefit. And so we share in His suffering, not reluctantly, uh, but knowing He is our hope. But the disciples seem to, to miss something here. Because while James and John are off having this conversation, the other ten are who knows where, but they get, get word. They finally catch on to what is being said, and they become indignant about the question James and John asked. And what's interesting to me is this, Jesus never did. He never got indignant about what, they, uh, what James and John had asked, but uh, in our humanness, we would. The disciples, out of their humanity, said, are you kidding me? Who are these two guys? Why should they be most glorified with Christ? So they become indignant. But here's what Jesus does. He responds to them and reminds them that he is going to serve out of need, not out of merit, and their job is to do the same. That the kingdom of heaven is never measured by my goodness or what I think I deserve, but by who he says I am. See, Jesus serves out of need, not out of merit. He ends his, his gentle rebuke by saying this, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus, just moments before, just as in the verses preceding, verses 33 through 45, he's saying the Gentiles do it differently. In Rome, you, are, uh, you have a contract relationship. Uh, there is a king, and you serve him. Uh, there is a, a regent, and you serve him. There is a governor, and you serve him. Uh, there is a military commander, and you serve him. That there is these contractual obligations to be met. And Jesus says it's all wrong. There is not a contractual obligation that must be met. You must serve everyone. And he doubles down in the language he uses. He first says you must be a servant of all. And in the original language, the, the word used there is meant to communicate someone who willingly bonded themselves back into servitude. A bond servant, someone who knew what they were really getting into. And so it's kind of a soft blow right there. And then Jesus uh, takes it one step further in verse, 40 says, verse 44 and says, you must be a slave of all. And in that passage, in that wording, the original means slave. There is no going back into slavery. You have never been bought out of it. Your job has always been slavery. You have always served at the pleasure of someone else and had no other option. So when Jesus says you must be a servant and a slave, he's saying no matter what it looks like, you are to serve others. Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And if we share in his suffering as we share in his glory, what that means is this. There is no cost too high. There is not one moment of this life 
uh, where he calls us to do something that he would not himself have already done. When it comes to serving others, we consider others better than ourselves. You see, Jesus is reminding the disciples of their calling that they are to serve, but not to serve on their terms, but to serve on the terms Christ set out before them. You are to serve each and every person. Later in Colossians, Paul would say that we are to serve no matter whether someone looks at us or not. In Colossians uh, three, the, the very end there, he's talking about husbands and wives and employees and slaves and slave owners. And what he's saying is be committed to me above all else. Throughout all of Scripture, what you see is that Jesus says, be committed to me. And then he gives a demonstration of what this would really look like. You see, he finishes his teaching, he finishes uh, his statements about what it looks like to do discipleship and what it looks like to follow him, to realize that we have a hope in him, that we share in his suffering, and that we serve each and every person we come across. And he says, let me give you a demonstration of this discipleship. Verse 46, he says, and they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. So as we get into the story, there is a man who has no worth on his own. He cannot work. He cannot provide a livelihood for himself. He would likely have no family other than his parents and brothers and sisters. He would not have a family of his own. And he's sitting by the roadside. He can't navigate unless someone navigates for him. He would know his town, but he wouldn't be able to go and travel uh, or hear any of the things other than what passers-by would say. And when Bartimaeus heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, when he hears about this man coming, here's what he does. He began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Bartimaeus, sitting on the side of the road, realizes that this man is different. He uses a title that implies he knew Jesus was the Messiah. He knew Jesus was the Savior. He knew Jesus was the one he needed. And in verse 48, many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. Jesus stops and says, call him. And the blind man, and they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up, he is calling you. And here is his response to that call. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And he immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. 
So we've unpacked just a little bit of it, that Jesus and Bartimaeus are interacting, that Bartimaeus is told to be quiet, but he will not. He gets even louder and says, I need a Savior. And Jesus, when he stops, he does not, uh, it does not indicate that he saw him, but that he would have heard him. Amongst all the voices that were crying out, he hears him, and Jesus being the, the one who is interruptible, even on the way to his next appointment, says, I need to stop. Call him. Call the one who's calling out to me. Call him to me. And suddenly the crowd does something different. The disciples likely did something different. They called the blind man. And they say, take heart, get up. He is calling you. If you underline in your Bible, would you underline those words? Those are the same words that are spoken to each and every one of us. Jesus looks at us and says, take heart, get up. I'm calling you. And then Bartimaeus has the best possible response. Bartimaeus, who we said was poor because he was a beggar and couldn't provide a livelihood for himself, takes off his cloak. And on first reading, it would be easy to ignore that, but he's taking one of the most prized possessions he has, an extra cloak where he would go and beg and be able to keep himself from getting too dirty. He abandons it. He takes off his cloak and abandons his old life in that one moment. His most valued possession was tossed aside in order to go to Jesus. And then the words that are given, he sprang up and came to Jesus. There is an intensity in those words that this blind man who wouldn't be able to see quickly moves towards Jesus, confident in who his Savior is. He realizes that Jesus is hope incarnate and nothing will stop him from getting to this man. And when Jesus and him come face to face, Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Jesus knows. This is the man this is the Messiah who looks into people's hearts, who answers questions that they don't even know they're asking. We see this all the way through Mark. And when Jesus says, what do you want me to do? He already knows. But he wants the blind man to acknowledge his need of a Savior. And he does it. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. You see, this phrase that Jesus or that Bartimaeus uses when he says rabbi he's not just saying teacher like others would say because rabbi has two meanings uh, based on how it's used in the language and rabbi could just mean teacher someone I respect or it could mean master the one who is over me at all times and this is what Bartimaeus says master he's acknowledging his place before Jesus he says let me recover my sight and Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. See, what Jesus and Bartimaeus are displaying for us is simple. That we need to go to him when he calls us. And that after he heals us, after he saves us, after he rescues us out of our own uh, issues, out of our own junk, 
we are not to abandon him. It would have been easy for Bartimaeus to go and now live his life. He has everything he could need. If his blindness was the only thing going against him, Jesus has restored it. But he instead follows him on the way. Bartimaeus does not just abandon his Savior. Bartimaeus responds in faith. You see, he admits his need for Jesus and follows him in continued faith. And as you read the story, let me finish with these two points that we need to take heart. It's point number one. And point two is we need to get up because he is calling you. You see, we take heart because God hears us. God hears us through all the circumstances, even in moments when we feel alone, unheard, unseen, unqualified, unworthy. When our merits don't measure up, He sees us anyways. We might not have what the the world says we have, but Jesus is the one who qualifies us. It does not matter what anyone else says. You are a son and daughter because he says so, not because you've earned it or someone else gives you that title. So take heart. And then he says, get up, he is calling you. You see, we need to respond when he calls. He reaches first towards us and we reach back. Jesus, in his, in his divinity, would have known that this encounter was going to take place. And if he did not want it to happen, he could have walked a different way. He could have taken a different path. Instead, he takes the first step towards us. And then Bartimaeus responds as he hears that he's going to be coming. And the same is true for you and I, that we can take heart knowing that Jesus hears us no matter what, and that we can get up and respond to him when he calls. And this final act of public ministry that Jesus displays through Bartimaeus is no accident because it serves as a model for us and a warning to us. You see, it models that what discipleship is meant to look like. It models uh, that we are to realize that Jesus is our hope and that even in our suffering, we can share with who he is and that he serves us not because we deserve it, but because he loves us. And that is the pattern over and over again. And it's a warning to us that we must not overcomplicate the process that we must not find ourselves sitting and silencing others the way the crowd did. When someone who needs Jesus, and it is very evident by the fruit of their life, responds to Jesus, and we say, hey, you need to get cleaned up first. You need to figure out your life a little bit before you can really come to Him. Before you can start coming to church, you need to look a little bit different. All we're doing is silencing Bartimaeus. And we are not to do that. Instead, we should be the first ones to say, take heart, get up, he is calling you. When our brother or sister has fallen and their life doesn't look like it should look, we should respond, take heart, get up, he is calling you. 
the call of the gospel goes out over and over again. And our response, our job as Christ ambassadors here on this earth is always the same. Take heart, get up, He is calling you. If that is not your mantra, if that is not the way that you are pursuing others in your life, you need to get in line. You need to have your heart aligned to the way Jesus would have you respond. That if you want others to become His disciples, it is this simple. Uh, Tell them about who He is and share the fact that He is calling them. That He has called you and that He has called me. And that there is great hope in that. That He Himself is hope incarnate. And that even in the midst of your suffering, before, during, and after uh, your conversion, it does not matter. He is with you all the way. That He is serving you, not because you deserve it, but because He chooses to love you. So as we close Jesus' public ministry, would you be encouraged knowing that it has never been about what you do to get to Jesus, but about what He did to get to you. That He stepped out of heaven, even into a broken world, and said, I want my people to be my people. I want my people to know who I am. So I am going to go and minister and then I'm going to show them that my glory looks like me taking on their sins. For their their wickedness, I will be crushed. But I will not stay that way. I will not stay in the grave. I will rise again. I will conquer. I will silence the boast of sin and grave. And if there's one thing that needs to be silenced in our life it is that it needs to be the silencing of sin not the silencing of those calling out to him so as you go this week as you move forward would you take heart would you remember that he hears you even in the midst of your junk that he hears you and knows you and would you get up and run to him Because He is calling each and every one of us. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank You for who You are. God, if there's anyone who is watching or listening, I ask that You would stir their hearts. That if they need to know You, that they would reach out, that they would hit the the get prayer button, that they would send a message in comments, that they would reach out to a pastor, uh, whether it's uh, one of ours or or someone at another church, that they would move immediately uh, towards you, that they would cast off the, the things of their old life in order to get to you, that they would realize that you are worth everything, that you are worth more than anything we can hope to accomplish on our own. So God, be with us as we as we ruminate over your word this week, would it it stir our heart? Would it be just a blessing to us? Would we be reminded that you are with us at all times? God, I just thank you for who you are and what you've done. Be with us as we continue in worship today, tomorrow, and the next day. God, just be with us as we continue to worship you with our very lives. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.